Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt, Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to johnji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at johnji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. There are places on the map where the road ends. It can be easy to forget that. I drove to what you might call the end of the roads once. Started here in New Hampshire. We drove first four hours north to Montreal. That's where the big yellow roads, the closed access highways, the interstates, that's where those end. But then we kept going another seven hours straight north to Matagami. That's where the highways built by the normal processes of government end, and a road built by a process of colonial corporate expansion began. And then we drove another 10 hours through the low black spruce trees that fight their way up from the thin soils of the Canadian Shield to Chisassabee, a thriving Cree town at 53 degrees north latitude. There's another road that goes east that we could have driven along for longer, but to get to the next village up the coast, we would have had to have gone by boat or plane or snowmobile. It felt like we had driven to the end of the roads. Today I want to tell you about another place on the map where the road ends. The agreement signed today by Secretary of Transportation Volpe Panamanian Minister of Public Works for Brega and Colombian Minister... In English, we call it the Darien Gap. In Spanish, it's called El Tapón del Darien, or the Darien Plug. The Darien Gap, needed to link together existing sections of the Pan-American highway system. This is not Richard Nixon you're hearing, by the way. It's my co-worker Nick Capodice very convincingly reading a written statement Nixon made in 1971 about the completion of a 14,000-mile road from Alaska to the tip of South America. The completion of the Darien Gap portion over the next several years 
will constitute an historic milestone along the road to understanding and unity within our hemisphere. The Darien has been many things to many people. In the late 1600s, Scotland, of all countries, made one of its attempts at colonialism by sending five ships to the Darien coast. This obviously didn't work out. It's now alternately called the Darien Scheme or the Darien Fiasco. Drivers have taken the Darien Gap as a challenge. The fact that this space has defied the dominance of roads seems to attract them. The first time a Jeep managed to drive the whole way, it took fully two years. One publicity stunt meant to literally sell Chevys resulted in a Chevy Corvair being permanently abandoned in the rainforest of the Darien. For a long time, experts thought that this section could not be built. The bottomless Atrato swamp which it must cross could not be conquered. The fact that this project will now be undertaken is a tribute, not only to modern engineering, but also to the determination of our countries to forge this final link in a great unifying international project. From a globetrotter's perspective, today the Darien seems to exist mostly as an obstacle to tourists who want to drive from Alaska to Tierra del Fuego. You can read about a thousand travel bloggers who have written nearly identical tales about taking the boat around it. Despite Nixon's sunny outlook, it has never been completed. Though now, the Darien Gap is only some 40-ish miles wide. What is a place that defies roads? A wilderness? You know, right at the edge of two continents, right? You know, where North America ends and South America begins. A swamp. It's unbelievable. You're standing in the middle there and there's, like, you're surrounded by mosquitoes. There's clouds and clouds of them. There's nothing you can do. A crucible. Muchísima gente, pues, ha quedado ahí en el Darien. A refuge? The roads bring with them loggers, miners, farmers, development. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. Today on the show, El Tapón del Darien, a place that has defied roads despite more than a century of efforts to build one. But roadlessness does not mean no one is there. What happens and what does not happen in a place without roads? I want you to consider this place through three frames. And the first frame is through the eyes of the coyote. Uh, so if they survive through the, through the Darien uh, you know, plug, as we call it in Colombia, I think they could become an invasive species very quickly. And to kind of start with the punchline here, the Darien is the last thing standing between the coyote and basically all of South America. This is a process that could take several hundred years. But we could well see coyotes down to in the southern tips of, of Argentina. This is Jorge, by the way. Yeah, my name is Jorge Ahumada, and I'm a senior wildlife conservation scientist at Conservation International. Jorge is from Colombia, just below the Darien Gap. And Jorge has done a lot of research with a very specific scientific tool. Camera traps. Cameras that you strap to a tree and which go off automatically when something walks by. It was really only in the last, like, 10 years that these became cheap enough to become a ubiquitous scientific tool. So, I mean, a lot of these animals, you don't see them. I mean, they're there, but because they're so rare. So the beauty of, of camera traps 
is you know they they catch these things very easily and if you put enough of them in in a in a forest in a protected area you will get you know 90 95 96% of of all the mammals you know that that dwell on the floor which prior to camera traps was a very difficult thing to do one quick camera trap tangent here once in the pre-camera trap days back when studying animal behaviors meant chasing them around with binoculars Jorge saw something in a rainforest in Colombia and i and i thought what what is this i mean looked like a little dog with little ears and uh, a stub tail and 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 so i went back to the camp and i told everybody i saw this animal and everybody was looking at me like i'm crazy it wasn't until 25ish years later that Jorge realized he had been one of a very few people to observe a very rare species that is mostly found east of the Andes in like Brazil a species which you should absolutely google because it's adorable called a bush dog I was like that's the- I saw this yeah. <laughs> 25 years it was like <laughs> pumping the air you know <laughs> yes The reason I'm telling you all this is because camera traps are how we know that coyotes are about to cross into South America. I don't have video on my end, uh, but I appreciate your video because I get to see that you've got a wall covered with like strange implements back there. That's right. That's my Skype background. That's my uh, those are my gardening tools. <laughs> This is Roland Kays, a professor at North Carolina State University and a coyote researcher of the most swashbuckling kind. Uh, is that actually true? What they look like a couple bow and arrows back there. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes you get harassed while you're guard. No, yeah, it's uh, just stuff I've collected. So the postcard now. version of the history of coyotes is that they're native to North America, but they weren't always so widespread. Yeah, so coyotes were in the western United States, Canada, and Mexico. They were in sort of drier, more open country. So pretty pr- pretty widespread across that area in grasslands, savannas, deserts, and more open open woodlands. Coyotes are amazingly adaptable. They eat whatever. They'll eat deer if they can get it, but also little stuff. Mice, rabbits, um, your cat. And they can also handle a fair amount of fruit and insects. So some of the animals down here in North Carolina eat a lot of their diet is insects and fruit um throughout the year. When you say fruit, like are we talking like apples? Well, sure, if there's apples, they'd love some apples. Um <laughs> down here it was a lot of persimmon. Okay. uh which you know so so you know i in new england there's probably going to be less fruit but certainly blueberries are uh um big for them during a certain time of year and unlike say wolves they have a ton of pups and they have more when food is abundant you know if it's a good year if there's lots of food around they can there can all of a sudden you know two animals can make 15 animals or 12 animals or whatever it was and all of those pups when they're born they head off trying to find a new territory and that's one of the reasons they're so hard to get rid of or control or limit their populations because anytime you remove one uh if it's a breeder you know three or four more are going to come in and try to take their place but if you keep removing these coyotes you're basically making you're creating a vacuum it's sucking in all these coyotes from the surrounding countryside that are out there looking for an opening in the pre-colonial days anywhere there was forest wolves and mountain lions kept coyotes out but then we killed huge numbers of wolves and mountain lions and in the 1900s coyotes started to move into their place yeah well so they really moved in in all directions north into alaska through the yukon and into alaska and that's that's the one we we actually don't know very much about that hasn't been well studied they moved into the temperate rainforests of the northwest they colonized the whole east coast which used to be very wolfy and mountain lioney but they also moved south 
Yeah, so they, you know, they moved south pretty quickly. Apparently in, you know, it's not super well documented, but we, you know, when, when a new animal like a coyote, you know, shows up in Costa Rica or Panama, people notice it. Um, and uh, it seemed like they crossed the Panama Canal, I think it was around 2010. If you're asking yourself how they crossed the Panama Canal, we have no idea how. And so we went down um, in 2015, we wanted to kind of see, okay, well, where, where are they? Um, how far have they gotten? Because um, it's not too far from the Panama Canal to uh, South America. So we ran a transect of cameras from Panama City, basically, um, towards an area called the Darien. And the, the, it's literally where the Pan American Highway ends. El Tapón del Darien, the quote-unquote bottomless swamp that Rhodes never quote-unquote conquered. That last unfragmented forest that can still support jaguars who don't treat coyotes very well. Roland says they've seen plenty of coyotes in the ranch lands leading up to the Darien, but so far they've only seen two in their camera traps, actually in the Darien forest. Roland calls those on the leading edge of the spreading population dispersers. The, the wave of colonization has made it about halfway to a, an area called uh, Lago Bayano. It's a, a big damned lake. But there's just these dispersers that are out, you know, out in front <laughs> looking for other coyotes, and they're not going to find any because there's none there, but there, there, there are, and they're right. So they are now, at least two coyotes have been found in the Darien province, you know, right kind of at the footstep of South America. But the Darien is different from every other area that the coyotes have moved through so far. They do best around the edges that we create. They ride the cresting wave of disturbed forests, ranch lands. Suburban sprawl opens up the land to them. But the Darien is a national park. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Biosphere Reserve. It's miles and miles of unfragmented jungle. It could be a little bit more hairy for, for them, if they, for coyotes, if they, if they run into this environment. They might get attacked by, by jaguars or by other cats that already live there. Um, there's pumas there too, you know, certainly could take coyotes down. This is not the only time the Darien Gap has served as a kind of ecological barrier. Occasional outbreaks of foot and mouth disease in South America have meant that North and Central American cattle ranchers have been very glad to have a forest full of jaguars separating the continents. And for decades, the U.S. and Panama have collaborated on an effort to keep a horrifying flesh-eating parasite out of North America by airdropping millions of sterilized screwworms over the Darien Gap, a kind of wall of infertility in the wilderness. And so now, the whole world is watching. Well, in certain circles, specifically researchers like Jorge Ahumada, ones who run camera traps on the Colombian side of the Darien, are watching. But, like, more metaphorically, the rest of us are too. Waiting to see if this versatile little canine that has already conquered North America, often despite our efforts to flat-out exterminate them with hunting and poison, will spread through South America too. With all of the ecological fallout that might entail... When a mesopredator makes its debut in an ecosystem, the results can be cascading. The classic example is house cats, which have contributed to the extinction of somewhere between 30 and 60 species worldwide. It is also possible that the coyotes won't be disastrous, at least at first, 
Colombia is one of the most diverse places in the world, and the coyote might have a hard time proliferating. They might just wind up skulking around the edges of towns, competing with stray dogs. We don't know what will happen. Both Roland and Jorge think coyotes will make it through, in part because another species already has, a South American species. The crab-eating fox already made it north into Panama. Roland and Jorge say the fox probably skirted up the coast, walking along beaches where it could to make the journey less dangerous. And the coyote could do the same in the opposite direction. But still, the Darien is the coyote's last obstacle to the south. Jorge knows all the researchers running camera traps on the Colombian side. Well, I guess, I, and that was one of my questions, is, is like, how confident are we that they will be detected? Like, are there a lot of camera traps right now in these forests? No. No, okay. No. No, it will be a, a, like a shot in the dark, you know. Yeah. You, you only need a, a pair to go through to start it, right? So it will be a pretty rare event. If you wanted it to be, this could be the story of the Darien Gap, the ecological bulwark, the last barrier keeping coyotes from colonizing all of South America. We could then move on for the rest of this episode to Jorge talking about whether or not he thinks it's actually likely that a species like the coyote would result in some sort of ecological disaster. If you look at where invasive species have been most successful is usually in islands, where there's not a lot of diversity. But here you're facing... We could hear from Roland Kays again about what might happen to coyotes' genetics in South America when the first few make it through and have no other coyotes to breed with. You know, a coyote breeds with a dog, it's 50-50, coyote, 50 dog. And then as they breed with more dogs, then it would be more dog and less coyote. That's all interesting stuff. But is that the story of the Darien? More after a break. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. This is Ustin Pascal Dubisson. He's from Haiti, but is currently living in Florida, waiting to hear about his pending asylum application. While he waits, he's started a YouTube channel, news and commentary directed at a Haitian audience. He came to the U.S., because he has family here. Sí, sí. Cada haitiano que está allá en Haití tiene por lo menos una familia aquí en Estados Unidos. Hmm. Y, y yo tengo demasiado. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, he says he has too much family here in the U.S. There's a chance that if you've heard of the Darien, it's because you've heard about it through the context of people like Pascal. He was one of tens of thousands of migrants, many from Haiti, but also Africa, who made their way overland through Central America to the U.S. border in 2016. He wrote a book about the experience called Sobrevivientes. I asked him, of that whole trip, what was the hardest part? No, 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 fue el Darien. 
He said it was the Darien Gap. Because in the Darien, you felt your life was not completely safe. Which feels like an understatement. In the first story, the Darien is an untrammeled wilderness, a biodiversity hotspot, a sanctuary for jaguars and endangered species. In the second story, the Darien is a liminal space occupied by extra-legal personalities. One 2010 Reuters headline screams, Panama's Darien teams with FARC drug runners. Pascal says his trip through the Darien started with a boat ride from Turbo, Colombia, across the Gulf of Uruba, ending in the famous bottomless Atrato Swamp. He was traveling with several hundred others because numbers brought safety. When he landed in the Darien, they were met by coyotes. That's the name in Spanish for people who are engaged in smuggling people across the border. Coyotes. He says the guides don't really guide you. If you walk too slow, they left you behind. They simply walked at the head of the group to show the way. The first night, the guides brought them to a little bar a little store in the middle of the jungle where they sold beer and rum and cigarettes and played dance music. And it was there that Pascal first experienced the Darien's infamous rain. I mean, the Darien is just like one of the most uh, rainy places in the world. That's Jorge Ahumada again. I think it's like 13 meters of rain a year or something like that. I struggled to verify that fact, but it's not wildly out of sync with what I could find. The third rainiest city in the world is Tutunedo, a city in the nearby rainforests of northern Colombia. And there, it rains more than 11 meters a year. Here you have, like, mountains combined with a lot of rain, combined with a lot of mud, and that gives you a lot of mosquitoes and a lot of other things. I mean, it's just, like, very difficult to go through. It's like, it's like, it's unbelievable. You're standing in the middle there, and there's like, you're surrounded by mosquitoes. It's like, there's clouds and clouds of them. There's nothing you can do about it. Pascal says it rained so hard that first night, sleeping next to the bar, that he basically never slept. The first full day of walking started at 5 a.m., He says they were walking in rubber boots they had bought after hearing about the mud. And that first day, they climbed up a slippery mountain trail that took eight hours to reach the high point. He says that many in their group didn't make it to the second night's camp on the other side of that climb until after dark. And when they did try to bed down next to a river, it rained again. Someone shouted that the river was rising, and they all scrambled in the middle of the night for high ground. After two full days of walking, Pascal and his group were delivered to a camp that had been set up by the Panamanian military to process the thousands of migrants that were crossing the Darien. They were still in the jungle, and it would be another week of waiting in a series of military camps, of wading across small rivers and floating downstream in improvised rafts before they finally emerged in a town on the other side. 
Pascal had gotten a cut on his foot that was badly infected by that time. But he made it. Many don't. I couldn't find an estimate of deaths in the Darienne, and I read in Spanish-language press reports that no estimate exists. But I found plenty of accounts, just like Pascal's, that make it clear that people do die. And it's not just death. Again, it's hard to find precise numbers, but sexual violence, especially against women and LGBTQ migrants along the route, is quite common. Están, como ellos están usando a la um, naturaleza en, en contra nosotros. He says, not completing the road is like using nature against migrants. It's like using the jungle as a wall. Y funcionó porque mu muchísima gente, pues, ha quedado ahí en el Darien. And he says, it works. Many people have died crossing the Darien. In the United States, it's been well documented that it was an actual federal policy to push migrants onto ever more dangerous routes, through deserts, over mountains, across rivers. In the U.S., this has resulted in thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of deaths. There are many reasons why the Pan American Highway was never finished. And not building a road is not quite so deliberate an action as choosing to build a wall. And Panamanian government officials have not been so blatant as to say, we're not building a road because we don't want immigrants from the South. But whether it's deliberately meant to be or not, the Darien is an ordeal that looms large in the minds of those who make plans to walk north. In this second story, the lack of a road through the Darien is a humanitarian crisis, fueling crime and death. What the first story makes seem like an unspoiled wilderness, in the second story is home to guerrillas, backwoods bars, and is spiderwebbed with illicit trails. Recuerdo que que cuando se hace la se hace la creación de de la, de la República de Panamá con la República de Colombia. This is Hector Huertas, one of Panama's indigenous Guna people, and an attorney who represents the seven indigenous communities in the country. He says when the borders of South America were drawn on the map by Spanish colonials, some of those communities were carved up by those new borders, like the communities living inside the Darien. De ahí que la existencia de caminos culturales han sido utilizados por los migrantes para pasar por el área. So when migrants and those who profit off of them began to pass through the Darien, there were trails already. What in both the first and second stories was empty wilderness, a national park, a UNESCO biodiversity preserve visited occasionally by drug runners and human traffickers, was and is occupied. There are around 10,000 of the Embera Wunan people scattered throughout two dozen villages in the Darien. And it is precisely this fact that has allowed this liminal place to continue to exist. Let me explain. The idea of connecting the Americas via one massive transportation network has been around since the heyday of the rail building days, just after the Civil War. But the impulse to build a giant highway to serve the commercial interests of the United States has been implicit in how American presidents have seen Central America since Teddy Roosevelt's big stick diplomacy. In English, this phrase is funny. It's kind of a punchline. But in Spanish, they call it La Política del Garrote. La Política del Garrote. 
If you don't speak Spanish, just trust me. It sounds way more sinister when you're on the other end of the stick. But even so, it was slow going. It never hurt that Panama did not have a huge incentive to complete the highway since most of its trade was going north, and they already had a road going in that direction. Hector says in the 1970s, despite the brave pronouncements of Nixon that we heard at the beginning, North American scientists recommended against opening El Tapón del Darién. They were afraid that outbreaks of foot and mouth disease that had been seen in Venezuela, Ecuador, and Colombia would spread north if there was a highway. They wanted to protect the North American cattle industry. This bought time for the indigenous movement to gather steam. In 1983, the Emberaunan people were given control of their comarca, what we in the United States would call a reservation. And that comarca formed a cordon, a blockade, if you will, across the Darien Gap, right across where the Pan-American Highway was being planned. Of course, infrastructure projects have been built through indigenous lands without ever really asking permission before. And this time, too, it looked like that was set to happen. The Inter-American Development Bank had set aside the financing to complete the highway. Panama and Colombia formed a Good Neighbors Commission whose principal goal was to finish it. The political window had opened. But something happened. Hector says a North American woman named Alicia Corden started to travel around to indigenous communities inside the Darien, telling them about the coming road. My name is Alicia Corden. And here she is. And I run a company called The Culture Company. And I lived in Panama for a few years, uh, from 93 to 1996. Alicia spent years going between the dozens of communities that would be affected by the highway. She says the deeper into the Darien you get, the more the families there are still living a traditional lifestyle, dependent on the rainforest. When I came into the region, you can see exactly what the highway does. So I started in this bus where everything I saw on the right and left of the road that I was on was denuded. It was burned and denuded. So the rainforest starts where the road stops. <laughs> and the roads bring with them loggers, miners, farmers, development. When you look at a map, you might see that much of the Darien Gap is designated a national park. But national parks are complicated. They're often created as a result of top-down initiatives, driven and financed by international interest groups. They're sometimes plunked on top of communities that don't want them. Sometimes governments themselves don't sustain much interest in enforcing the park's protections. And in the case of the Darien, that is left up to the indigenous people who live there. So according to Hector, it was less the protected status of the land and more the financing that brought the project to a halt. Hector says the loans for the road came from the World Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank, or IDB. 
and they were given with certain contingencies about human rights, about indigenous title to indigenous land. Which meant that when the bulldozers started to roll in the late 90s, there was a fully unified indigenous movement ready to call foul. And, uh, and so uh, then that was the moment that they were like, okay, sound the alarms, you know? And, uh, and so then the Sierra Club and uh, World Wildlife Fund and a whole, whole bunch of uh, different environmental players now kind of descended on the IDB and said, hey, you know, we have this resolution from, you know, five indigenous congresses in Panama saying that they don't want this project and it's in violation of these, regulations and what's going on. And so everything, you know, kind of like started moving really quickly at that point. And the bulldozers actually got pulled back out and the project stopped. After that, the political window of opportunity seems to have closed. So far, the Panamanian government has shown no interest of late in again taking up the fight to build a road through El Tapón del Darién. So what is this place without roads? This place that, judging by a Google search of its name, mostly figures in people's imaginations as the one remaining impediment to a truly epic road trip. The thing I like about my job, about getting to make this show, is that In talking to the people that I did for this story, I went through the same journey that hopefully I just walked you all through. I personally started picturing the Darien Gap as a spotless rainforest and ended with it as part of a broad story of indigenous resistance. At first, it was a tapón, a plug, separating the biota and the people of North and South America. But I finished seeing it as part of an interconnected geography a rainforest filled with people defending their way of life. This story began describing another place where looking on a map, it looks like the end of a road in Canada, past Montreal, past Matagami, through the spruce trees and into the taiga, the Cree town of Chisasabi. But while most roads might stop there, human movement does not, whether by air or by river or by ocean, In many ways, winter opens up the land there even more by blanketing the underbrush with snow to slide over. So the Arctic tundra is not empty. And of course, neither is the Darien Gap. These places without roads are not blank spaces on a map. They aren't anomalies waiting to be corrected. A road is a way of moving, but really it's just one way to get somewhere. Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Justine Paradise and Taylor Quimby. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is director of our Coyote Fancy fan club. If you're interested in a very detailed history of the Pan American Highway and how it came to be that the Darien Gap has been preserved, there's a book you should check out. It's called The Longest Line on the Map, The United States, the Pan American Highway, and the Quest to Link the Americas. Special thanks to its author, Eric Rutko. Special thanks also to Pedro Mendez of the University of Panama and to Ross Irwin of Humanizando la Deportación. 
If you love the show, there are many ways to stay in touch. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Find us by searching at Outside In Radio. And we have a newsletter which you can subscribe to as well at our website, OutsideInRadio.org. And remember, we are a public radio show. We depend on donations to make this all happen. You can give online at our website as well. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Thank you.